0: Welcome back to the Happy Saver podcast. I'm Ruth, a personal finance blogger here in New Zealand. And in this podcast, I chat to a diverse bunch of people and I learn their story and condense it down so that you can hear helpful, relatable stories from Kiwis who are sharing their experiences, their tips and their points of view on personal finance right here in Aotearoa. Now, a few conversations back and forth with Neil led me to picking up the phone for a more detailed korero with him. While he was really happy to share his story because he is super willing for others to glean something from our chat that they can use to hopefully improve their own financial situation, he did want to really protect his privacy. So I've chosen to call my guest today Neil, after a family member of mine who hails from the same part of the world, the United Kingdom. Now Neil is single, he's in his late 40s, a father of one, and he's lived in Aotearoa since 2005. So 17 years now, meaning he arrived here in his early 30s. He came because he was looking for a change in circumstance and job. His line of work, which is in telecommunications, had lured him to London, and it was the resulting commute to work that pushed him to move over here. He found himself with a two to two and a half hour daily commute each way. He drove to the train station, he took a train to London, he took two tube rides and then he walked to his office. And I bet that when Neil listens to this episode, he will be surprised that my opening comments are about his work commute, but that enormous waste of his precious time, that really stood out to me. Living in Alexandria as I now do, I can't fathom signing up for a commute that long. That's four to five hours of your day taken away from you, just getting to your place of work. And Neil summed the impact of it up when he said that it stole from him all of his personal and recreational time. He did have the weekends free, but by the time they rolled around, he was often too exhausted to enjoy them. And I'm not surprised he looked to change the situation and move to New Zealand. But before I get too far ahead of myself, I'm just going to pause and share a quick bit of information from today's sponsor. After many years of running my blog and podcast out of any room in the house that would give me some privacy... I decided the time had come to create a studio in the garden to call my own. Using Pocketsmith, I tracked the entire project by creating a category called Writing Studio, and I set a realistic budget of just $2,200. With such a tight budget, using Pocketsmith helped keep track of the exact cost of the build, tracking both the money spent on new and recycled products, and the money received from selling unwanted goods to fund the project. It gave me peace of mind to head into a project with such a strong financial plan but that doesn't mean I didn't overspend, though. In fact, Pocketsmith let me know that I'd overspent by $217. That's not Pocketsmith's fault, entirely my own, and the studio I have now was so worth every extra dollar spent. If you want to supercharge your finances with Pocketsmith, they have got a deal for you. Happy Saver listeners get a whopping 50% off your first two months of Pocketsmith's premium plan. To get your deal, go to pocketsmith.com forward slash the Happy Saver. That's pocketsmith.com forward slash the happy saver. Neil did the majority of his schooling in England when his father's work took them there when Neil was young but he said he was not doing particularly well at his school studies so his daddy found him a job at the place where he was working and for a couple of years he stayed there. That had its own issues, he said, and he thought, I have to fix this and do something different, and going to university looked like a really good opportunity to make a change. He ended up heading off to uni in his mid-twenties, graduating in 1999. He said that holding off going meant he was older when he got there, and he mucked around a lot less than his 18 and 19-year-old classmates. The delay in attending was worth it, and he got stuck into it and got good grades. I think it makes all the difference too that university is very different from school and you get the opportunity to study exactly what you're interested in, so of course you are going to engage with it more. Of course, I had to ask how he paid for it, being none too familiar with the systems on that side of the world in the mid-1990s. He said that free education had ended a generation beforehand, but university fees were much lower compared to now, and he paid for them with a student loan, a partial grant or scholarship, and some family support. He said that while most mature students all had part-time jobs throughout the semester, he tended to only work during the holidays, but when he did go to work, it was always full-time. Now, given it was 23 years ago now, he can't recall how much his student loan was, but he recalls that it was on the smaller side, and he said he began the process of chewing away at paying it off as soon as he graduated. He was fortunate in that the summer job he had in his second and third year of study morphed into a permanent job. The pay was not fantastic, but he was busy with overtime whenever he wanted it, and that always paid more. He said it was the time of the millennium bug when the world was concerned about the calendar ticking over to the year 2000, and all of our computer systems not recognizing the number and ceasing working. And I remember it well, it was a really big deal at the time. He spent his days driving around patching software on computers to get them ready, and he made hay while the sun was shining and worked as hard as he possibly could. So, given he had money rolling in, I asked what he said about doing with his financial life. He said that there was a bit of money talk at home growing up. His parents were both mindful of money, reasonably frugal, but not overly so. And back then, as was pretty normal for the times, they were a single income family. His mum was full time raising Neil and his two older siblings and running the household, and his dad's full time income was fairly good, enough to cover all their needs, but they didn't splurge, he said, and they went on family caravan holidays instead of international travel. He remembers that his mum ran a basic budget on a piece of paper and also in her head, and as he got older, they started to give him pocket money for jobs and the accompanying advice to not spend it all in one go. Neil was working age before he would have proper money conversations with his dad, And during those chats, his father would pass on key bits of information, such as, as soon as you start working, you should put some money away. That money is not for spending, but for compounding and growing over time. That most excellent piece of advice, it did eventually sink in, but not right off the bat. It was to take a few years yet. And thinking back on some of those key words of wisdom, he said that since that time, he has always kept a budget for where his money is going to go and he never spends everything that he gets. He did save money early in life, but it was to be years later when he finally started investing that he realized that the money his dad encouraged him to put away needed to be invested, and when left alone, it would begin to compound and grow and take on a life of its own. And just on that, my thoughts for parents is to give your kids specific advice that goes beyond just saying save or invest, Telling them exactly where to save and invest is important because it can be acted on immediately and help them set these investments up early in life too, so that when they do leave home, they can just continue on adding their own flavour as they go. With his savings, Neil was able to put a deposit on his first home in 2001. He paid £95,000 for it and he set about paying it off over the next 16 years, finally getting it paid off in 2017. He said that hindsight has shown him that he struck it lucky with his mortgage. He visited a few banks and talked with a mortgage broker and came upon an existing bank that was trialing an online-only mortgage as a way to cut costs for lenders. Remember that this was way back in 2001, so doing business online was all pretty new. They offered what he explained was the Bank of England base rate plus 0.5%. At that time, interest rates were 5 to 6%, And as the Bank of England cut that base rate due to economic conditions at the time, his mortgage rate dropped and dropped until the interest he was paying on his mortgage was down to a minuscule 10 to 20 pounds a month. This lender was a chance find, he said. He purchased the property with the primary intention of living in it, which with his girlfriend at the time he did. But when the chance of a 12-month contract came up in New Zealand, He decided to rent it out in his absence, and that way, after a year, if he decided to return to the UK, he would have a home to come back to. He knew his first tenant, his now ex-girlfriend, and managing the property from afar was not an issue. But when they moved on, being a long distance landlord became a ripe pain in the ass to manage from the other side of the world, he said, so he had to pay the ten percent fee of a letting agency. They turned out to be pretty incompetent, and late at night, he still found himself organizing things from New Zealand meaning he was far more engaged than he ever wanted to be. As his stay in New Zealand was extended, he decided to sell his house because it was a pain in the neck. But his sibling talked him out of it and encouraged him to hold on for what it could be worth in the years ahead. They said to Neil that if the house washes its own face, meaning it pays its own way, it could become a cash-generating asset in the coming years. So for 16 years, after all the expenses were paid, like the rates and the insurance, the letting fees and what have you, And with interest rates being so low, all the rent went towards the principal of his mortgage year after year. Even though he never bought his home with the intention of becoming a landlord, over time it has worked out well, and he is grateful for that advice to keep it, and he still owns it today. And because it is mortgage-free, after expenses, he now keeps the rent. He said the decision of using all of the rent to pay off the mortgage was more easily made because it was so far away and it was far easier to compartmentalise this investment and say, over there in England is my safety plan if it doesn't work out in New Zealand, and over here in New Zealand, I'll live on the income I generate here, just like every Kiwi does. Although he has had a few long-term tenants of about five years apiece, although he never goes longer than a week without having a tenant, he still has a reasonable amount of tenant turnover, so he uses an agency still to collect rent and do safety and governance, to make sure he is providing a good home for his tenants. He has managed to establish a relationship with his current tenant outside of the agency, and they work together to fix any issues, which is working out to be so much easier than having the agency faff around for weeks on end, fixing the most minor of issues, Neil explained. Today the home is worth about £250,000, about 480000 New Zealand dollars, and after all outgoings, he is left with about 1900 New Zealand dollars a month, And this monthly cash flow has come in very handy over the years. Mostly he keeps it in the UK because he does have investments there as a result of working there, but sometimes he needs a little over here and it's good to have a steady stream of cash available and accessible. It's nice to hear from a landlord who actually gets to keep the rent. We talked about him getting his life in order to move to New Zealand for what he thought would be just one year. He said that he had a bit of tidying up to do before leaving the UK. Although he had made good progress on them, he still had some student loans to pay off, plus he was carrying some debt on credit cards. He credits that credit card debt as being one of his financial mistakes. When he bought his house, he started using credit cards and some store-based credit cards to purchase the things he needed to do some renovations, but the balance has built up to such a big chunk of money that he was now paying high interest on that and he realised that he'd made a mistake. Plus, he said the house didn't increase in value in line with what he was spending on it. In the end, his girlfriend at the time paid his debt off for him, meaning that he stopped paying high interest, and he paid her back in full, giving him an excellent lesson in the borrower is a slave to the lender. He felt terrible owing her money, and it taught him a real lesson. In hindsight, he could have made payments to his debts from New Zealand, but it felt better to make a clean break and leave the UK with only his mortgage. So he had a big savings push to get all his debts cleared, plus he built up a cushion of cash, just a couple of thousand New Zealand dollars, to come over here with and get set up. His employer gave him a few weeks of paid accommodation before he was able to find someone to flat with. Now the big change for him coming over here was that he moved to a much, much smaller city and was able to live just a bike ride from his work, and as a keen cyclist, that was a win. But without the public transport options like you have in London, when he came here in 2005, he did buy a cheap used car with borrowed money. And I find that with people and debt, it is often a case of two steps forward and one step back before they can finally stay clear of debt. He knew he felt uncomfortable owing money, but that had not yet translated into saving up enough to pay cash for big items. And we learn these lessons over time. Now, he was fortunate to have stumbled across a link to the Motley Fool way back in about 1997. They published a book which I think was called The Motley Fool Investment Guide. Neil read it, he digested it, yet he didn't act on it until well into the 2000s. From 2006 onwards, he started to become more interested in learning about money, and he started to find resources to teach him, and he referred back to that book as well. The gist of it was, instead of buying individual stocks and having no clue, index funds exist, and they have low fees with broader diversity. It was a book on the power of compounding, and it pretty much said, shut up and invest. It was a lucky chance to read a specific book on how to invest, and while he took years to act on it, he did mull over what it said. Over time, he found the likes of Mr. Money Mustache and Dave Ramsey, and he worked out that a little bit of extra effort and a bit of going without can pay off and make life easier down the track. Today, all of these tools and resources can easily be found online. Finally, though, the time came to dust off the Motley full information and action it. That is, shut up and invest. When KiwiSaver began in 2007, he joined up straight away because his dad had been telling him he needed to put money aside for retirement. He had been used to investing in a super scheme in the UK, so while other Kiwis dithered about it, he was straight in. Both he and his employer contributed 4%, which he thought was too low, even though he knew that the minimum an employer needed to pay was just a piddly 3%, he was amazed at how low the contributions were, but his employer basically said, you have to sort it out yourself. When he received a pay rise, he did sort himself out, and he bumped his contribution up to 8%. Hindsight tells him this was a really good decision because today, his KiwiSaver balance is sitting at around $200,000, all because of those steady and consistent larger payments from every single paycheck. The balance did get as high as $240,000, but current share market conditions in mid-2022 mean it's down for now. Today, his fund is with Superlife. Around the year 2017, it dawned on him he might want to retire earlier than most, and he realised the implications of having all of this money locked away until he turned 65. So he has since dropped his KiwiSaver contributions down to 3% and started to invest some of his take-home pay into index funds elsewhere. But all that money poured in during these years of rising share markets is doing exactly what his dad said it would do. It's compounding and growing. Low fees, broadly diversified, high growth funds and investing every month stands the test of time, he said. After settling into life in New Zealand, he met a woman and they ended up buying a home together in 2006. She already owned a home but wanted to turn that into a rental property and join forces with Neil to buy a home for the two of them to make their own. They scraped together a deposit and before buying, they visited a lawyer to seek advice on how to protect each other and their individual assets in case their relationship didn't last. Although awkward, I'm sure this was a sound move. They had a good solid relationship, he said, and with double incomes and no kids, he gradually talked her over to his way of thinking about smashing out the mortgage and paying this off so that they could get themselves into a better financial position. They changed to a bigger home at one point. And all the while, the price of the property was going up and up, or in his words, going ballistic. They kept their money separate and paid down debt while each keeping an equal stake in the property. Over time, she was sick of the hassle of her rental property and sold it, using the equity in it to clear a large chunk of debt on their shared home. The idea was that becoming debt-free would give them a better lifestyle. In hindsight, he said that for a long time, he was overly focused on paying off the mortgage and said he felt he might have been single-minded in that goal. He wonders if it may not have ended if they had not been quite so intense on that goal. Unfortunately, as I just alluded to, the relationship didn't last a distance. They didn't get that debt all paid off and when they went their separate ways, they split the money up in a way that meant that they each got back the money they put in. So it was an uneven but extremely fair split because she had put in more. Once they got their own money out, they split the remainder of the capital gain that the home had made in half. Although I'm sure it was sad to end a long relationship, he said that both of them were happy that the settlement was equitable and fairly managed. Neil chose next to rent for a while while he decided what to do next, and this is a good time to explain what investments he had in New Zealand outside of KiwiSaver. He said that NZX owned company and provider of ETFs, SmartShares, Drew him in early on because of their range of funds and low fees. We actually didn't go too deeply into what he is invested in, but he briefly explained that he has a mix of the following. He's got 60% of his money in the New Zealand top 50 and 40% is in the Australian mid cap fund. Once he was well on his way to being more organised with his money, Neil was extremely fortunate to be gifted a large sum of money from an inheritance. It was about 300,000 New Zealand dollars. And by the time he received this, he had the knowledge to use it wisely. By this point he realised he needed more exposure to the US and the UK share markets instead of being concentrated in the relatively small New Zealand and Australian share markets. So this money stayed in the UK and he invested in the FTSE 100, which is 100 companies with the highest market capitalization listed on the London Stock Exchange, and the FTSE 250, which consists of the 101st to the 350th largest companies listed on the London Stock Exchange. But again, still no exposure to the US, so in recent years he has been diversifying even further and investing in the US 500 and, more lately, a total world ETF fund. I asked, given that he is so settled in New Zealand now, if he would consider selling his UK property. He has considered it, but owning this property gives him further diversity over and above these share investments, And that monthly cash flow has been really useful too. So over the years he has diversified a huge amount and now he has a lot of money invested outside of his KiwiSaver fund. And he said that as long as he has the discipline to keep adding to it, keeping it accessible works well. And as we will soon learn, although there is no desire to dip into it at this stage of life, he might have to. While renting after the breakup with his partner, he began a new relationship, and in an exciting surprise they fell pregnant. Neil thought it was wise to buy a home, so used the $400,000 from the sale of his previous home to put a deposit on the next one, which he paid about $860,000 for. He wanted to get some stability for the soon-to-be family of 3, and although they had started the process of drawing up a property relationship agreement with a child about to enter the picture, It got a lot more complicated and it didn't get completed. Although he is now a doting dad, his relationship with his partner only lasted a couple of years and they are still trying to reach a settlement over the sale of the property, the value of which rose to about $1.3 in just two years. The ease with which his previous relationship ended, with each walking away with what they had put in, plus an appropriate sharing of profits, was not to repeat itself here and he remains in the midst of working out both the length of the actual relationship, because that is important, and the division of the money, or not, brought into the relationship and the contributions made well together. Now, I don't want to deep dive into this, because I'm painfully aware that there are two sides to every story, but there are still some details worth sharing to prevent an ongoing legal battle for others. I asked Neil where he went wrong. He said that in hindsight, in a new or even a more established relationship, you should still take steps to protect yourself and each other, particularly if the wealth is unequal. If one of you is coming into a relationship with all of the money, you both need to establish a lawfully binding contracting out agreement at the start of a relationship, not later on when it's going to be perceived as a heartless contract. For the person who is not contributing financially, but in other ways, you need to be clear about what your expectations are in the event of a breakup. You have to be really explicit, and it's a hard and uncomfortable thing to work through. In his case, they never got that sorted early, and it's made it more complex now that the relationship is over and that they have a child together. As I was writing this up, I heard some big news. Wait for it. Apparently, Jennifer Lopez and Ben Affleck got married. Who knew? I'd missed the memo that they were even a couple. Now, you can be quite sure that while these two were taking romantic walks on the beach, their respective lawyers were hard at work on paperwork around what to do if they separate. So be like Jen and Ben. It would be obvious to both of them that they had to get an agreement in place early on to protect each other and themselves. Now, Neil and his ex-partner have worked out a custody agreement though, meaning that while the adults might be in a disagreement over hundreds of thousands of dollars, They are in absolute agreement over the care and the shared parenting of their child. They have been using the mediation services provided by the government, he said, using a mediator to work between the two of them, and they have reached an arrangement they are both in agreement on. At a few pivotal moments, Neil has engaged a lawyer, and each time he has, the advice they have given has been worth the small amount of money he has spent. His hope is to negotiate a settlement that suits them both, but currently, they remain some distance apart. He said that you need to work out what to walk away from and what to fight for. And even though he is saddened by his current situation, he tells himself that at least he has options. He has not had to sell the house he purchased for his expanding family and still lives in. His child has the stability of being in the same home and he is managing to live on one income and service a mortgage of about $400,000. Some of that extra cash flow coming from his home in the UK is really helping him right now. In running his home here in New Zealand. The house is not the right house for him now that there is one less person in it, and he is also conscious of the transaction costs of selling and moving. And no more girlfriends for him for now. He has learned his lesson, he said, and he won't ever go into a financially uneven relationship again. I asked him if it ever crossed his mind to just walk away from the money. Yes, it has, but only if any settlement was airtight and 100% complete. He struggled with coming to this conclusion, one that would mean a large financial loss to him, because it hurts knowing that he spent so much time and effort planning and growing his financial life for something to force a change to those plans. It would be a hard blow to accept. But after losing sleep with worry, he is coming to terms with potentially having the worst case scenario play out. He still has a stable yet flexible job, earning $110,000 a year, plus that 3% into his KiwiSaver. He's got his home, plus investments. And of course, he has a child that he never thought he would have. He can grow his wealth again. Now, I'm not sure if I've ever shared this story on my blog before, but hearing Neil talk reminded me of a conversation I once overheard many, many years ago when I was lounging in the sea in Townsville, Australia. These two guys were floating around near to me. They were clearly mates and were having a good old catch-up. They were certainly not whispering their conversation so I and probably others all around soon learned that one guy's partner had left, taking the contents of what sounded to be quite a substantial bank account with them. His mate commiserated that this was indeed pretty rough but he said, you'll be okay mate, you're young, you can start again. And his mate was like, You know what? You're right. I can. I've done it once before. I can do it again. It was a pretty bizarre conversation to overhear, but it has always stayed with me. And I can't help thinking that for Neil, with those financial foundations he has already created in other asset classes, any financial loss will be covered in time and the compounding will continue. He has worked out how to do it once. He can do it again. We chatted about the future, and he thought that one day when he looks back, he may well think that he was worried about all the wrong things. He has noticed before that the concerns he had at the time of an event, in hindsight, looked after themselves with time. Having a child a little later in life than others makes him realise he is so fortunate. Despite the legal tussle, he is financially stable, with an emergency funder's backup, and he can afford to pay for the things his child needs without worrying about the price. Since the end of the relationship over a year ago, Neil has let his budgeting slip a bit, but has more lately begun the gradual process of redoing his budget to suit his new situation. It used to be simple, but now he has some additional child-related costs, and his budgeting has been evolving to suit, and it's time to start financially planning for the years ahead, he said. With a potential payout of unknown size on the horizon, he knows he is going to have to find hundreds of thousands of dollars at some point, and it's very hard to budget for that. So he works out his actual expenses as he knows them, and he calculates how much he has to spare so that he is living within his means. Money spent on his child is never a waste, and being a parent is teaching him that every decision you make is no longer just a financial decision. He's smoothing out those bigger costs, such as the annual car insurance payment, by using sinking funds so that they gradually build up over the year. He is trying to remove as much uncertainty from his spending and earning as he can and doing his best to avoid dipping into his emergency funds. Which still sit at over ten thousand dollars, because it feels reactive and shows a lack of planning to do so, he said. He is still paying into his KiwiSaver and still investing outside of KiwiSaver too. A settlement will be reached, and he will need to pay out, and I was curious as to where the money would come from. He does not want to borrow more money because increasing the size of the mortgage will have too much of an impact on his monthly cash flow, he said. So it is more likely that it will come from the sale of some of his shares. Either New Zealand based ones, UK ones, or a mix, meaning that when he sells an asset, he will lose the income that they have been generating, which to date he has been reinvesting. Today, if he were to add up all his wealth, he thinks it would sit somewhere around 2.2 to 2.4 million, with a lot of that value in the home he lives in and the house in the UK. But safe to say, the money is there. Just working out how to release it will be the deciding factor. Despite a looming bill to pay, he gave me two main financial habits, things that he just automatically does, and they fit right in with what I've just outlined. He pays himself first by saving and investing first, and then he spends on his needs and his wants. He has a written budget for each month that he plans out in advance, just like his mum used to do. He also goes back afterwards and refreshes the numbers if something has not gone to plan. This makes a lot of sense. You need to check that the budget you are setting yourself actually works in reality. His money elevator pitch has been created out of the experience, I think, and it is to live on less than you earn and save for a rainy day. But don't put off all enjoyment in the present moment for a possible future payout, because you need to enjoy life today and always have something that you pay for that brings you joy. And in Neil's case, he has a few hobbies that he enjoys spending money and time on. His biggest financial triumph was starting to invest earlier in life, closely followed by buying a house holding onto it and chancing upon that really good mortgage deal that helped him pay it off. And what might Neil's greatest financial misstep be? Acting on the Motley Fool book when he first read it would see him in a different position today. But there have been other minor missteps along the way, things like investing in a single stock because of hype and losing all his money. He paid stupid tax on that one, he said, and has learned not to do that again. He said he feels sorry for people just starting out, the options available are varied and tempting and it makes it harder for the uninformed investor to see the wood for the trees with so much on offer. But possibly his greatest challenge has been investing too much in a relationship and this is the one he is now paying for or soon will be. And on the topic of what's the most extravagant thing you've purchased for yourself in the last 90 days, there was no great standout but we did get to chat about cars. He still drives a low-value car, but he has been quietly observing his peers and the constant stream of nicer, newer cars that keep appearing. He knew that they were sacrificing a chunk of their monthly paycheck for years on end to pay for these cars. In fact, he has noticed a real shift in how Kiwis view their vehicles in the time he's been in New Zealand. It used to be that a car was more or less to get you from A to B but now it's turning into much more of a status symbol in an effort to keep up with those very elusive Joneses. He said he is forever gobsmacked when he looks at the price of new cars and he does his market research, often heading out for a run or a bike ride and stopping in at car yards for a bit of a nosy. He asks himself the question of how much would he have to earn before he would feel comfortable spending over a year's salary on a car, as he sees many others doing. Clearly, lots of people are comfortable and prepared to spend given the number of new cars he sees on the roads. As with other conversations I've had with this podcast, we ended up on the topic of investing for your children. Neil is investing for his child using the provider Hatch due to the ease of setting it up. He is investing in just one fund, a broadly diversified ESG fund, which stands for Environmental, Social and Governance. Because he has taken the view that now that he is investing for someone who was getting started so much younger than he ever did and will be around a lot longer, he thinks maybe he should be investing in environmentally aware funds. And he has noted that many are performing as well as his own index funds. You can be quite sure that he will be educating his child about these investments. And I asked Neil what he would do if he could retain all of the knowledge that he has today regarding money and he could go back to his 15-year-old self and start again whether that be the same or something quite different. At a few points in time, he would have asked himself if he needed to be dedicated to his plan for financial independence and why, once he learned about low-cost, broadly diversified funds and dollar-cost averaging in the 1990s, why didn't he start investing? And his answer to my question came to mind as I was answering lots of emails during the week. I got an email from a person in their early 30s who said that they loved my podcast, which is very kind, but they often don't relate to the stories of people in their 40s and 50s. They asked me to interview more people in their 20s who are financially sorted. Now, I do try to find these people, but the thing I've found is that most people are like Neil or like myself. We didn't know about good financial management when we were young, and it took us a while to learn and get started. By the time we start sorting ourselves out, then bam, we're already in our 40s. But the fact is that every single person I speak with says something along the lines of, I wish I knew about this when I was young. Or they are like Neil, they did learn about it, but they just failed to act. So if you are listening to this and you are young, don't just end this podcast and get on with your day. Please take action. And if you are under the age of 30 and you have got yourself on the path to FI and have developed some excellent financial habits that you want to share, please reach out to me at Ruth at the HappySaver.com because I'd love to interview you for this podcast. And as for those wanting more information from Neil about the resources that he has found useful, what books or podcasts or blogs would he recommend? He said that he used to listen to Dave Ramsey religiously. He found his common sense approach to money and his stay out of debt message useful to listen to, but he is slow to recommend in these days because he is getting a bit off message with his political views, and I'd have to say I completely agree. Otherwise, he would encourage you to find a money book, any money book, and just start reading. If you find a book that works and resonates with you, it's really easy to find the next book and the next book after that. That original Motley Fool book he read might not be as relevant today, but the concepts are still valid and the new knowledge he picks up along the way, it just adds to his understanding of growing wealth. He enjoyed the new Mary Holm book called A Richer You recently. And it is, he said, a gentle read, encouraging caution and common sense, two concepts that will work well in finance. Now, I'm almost there, but before I wrap up, I have another quick message from today's sponsor. If you want to supercharge your finances with Pocketsmith, they've got a deal for you. Happy Saver listeners get a whopping 50% off your first two months of Pocketsmith's premium plan. To get your deal, go to pocketsmith.com forward slash the Happy Saver. That's pocketsmith.com forward slash the happy saver. Now, firstly, a huge thanks to Neil for sharing his experiences of moving to New Zealand and setting up a life here. I think that he will be reflective of many new New Zealanders. They move here, but they keep a foot in their old home country as well. And it's a matter of working out how the two systems work together. Thanks also for sharing your own experience of a relationship breakup and the financial challenges of that. It's an all too common thing And I hope that by him opening up, others can make sure that they talk early and often in their relationship about money so that they can avoid any future heartache. Neil has come a long way in life since his move from London to New Zealand. His one year has turned into 17 and counting. And I'd imagine that there is no chance of him ever signing up for a four to five hour commute to work again because he has realised, especially now that he has a child, that time is a commodity you can never earn back. Like you use money wisely, you need to use your time wisely too. And I think I struck Neil at a time of transition. He was trying to level himself up again while still dealing with the fallout from a failed relationship, but one that has given him such a perfect gift, a child. He had been paying increasing attention to his finances with each passing year, and when a woman entered his orbit, particularly in the second relationship, he assumed, I think, that they would most likely fall in sync together over time. But every single one of these podcasts I curate, it shows me the myriad of backgrounds people come from and the diverse ways that they learn about money and form views of money, meaning they are not always compatible with their partners. Neil is in the process of unraveling a poor romantic matchup and all the fallout from it, but it will work itself out and it will be resolved soon. At the end of the day, I know this is a personal finance podcast, but it's only money which is at the heart of the problem here. Neil has worked out over the years how to make money and how to manage it, and he will move past the setback and learn from the experience. In the meantime, he has a child depending on him to be the best dad that he can be, so that in years to come, they can look back at what their own dad, Neil, has taught them, just like Neil looks back and remembers the wisdom his own mum and dad handed down to him. So I wish you all the very best, Neil. So that's all from me this week. If you would like to get in touch, you can find me at thehappysaver.com and I would love it if you could leave me a rating and a review wherever you listen to podcasts and please do share it with your friends. It is the best way that people can learn about the podcast and I would love it if you would talk more about money with your own friends and Fano and help me continue to help others be better with money. So until next time, happy saving.